0: Hello, my name is Kevin Fernando. I'm a GP partner at North Berwick Health Centre near Edinburgh and also Education Director of GP Notebook Education. Welcome to the current season of GP Notebook Podcast, a bite-sized regular chat for all of us working in primary care. Podcast will cover clinical tips and hacks, as well as hot topics to help make our lives a wee bit easier, but ultimately to help improve the lives of our patients in primary care. I've been recently involved in planning a series of webcasts for healthcare professionals in the UK, which are all taking place during May 2021 as part of what we're calling Chronic Conditions Month. The webcasts, which are being run in association with GP Notebook, are designed to help all of us working in primary care with the significant challenges we've faced in diagnosing and managing chronic conditions over the past year in the midst of the COVID pandemic. Healthcare professionals in UK can register to attend all the events for free at www.chronicconditions.co.uk. So I hope you'll be interested in joining us. And to accompany the, these webcasts, the Chronic Conditions Faculty has recorded a series of podcasts in the past few weeks in which we provide some practical advice and suggestions to help you optimise care here and now across a range of conditions. So without further delay, please enjoy the second in this series of special episodes. This one is brought to you by Dr. Peter Bagshaw and Dr. Yasser Javed. Okay, welcome
1: everyone. Hello, I'm Peter Bagshaw, GP, CCG mental health lead and author of An Older People's Mental Health, a practice primer. I'm delighted to be joined today by Yasser Javed, GP with special interest in cardiology based in Northampton. Welcome to our new podcast, which comes to you as an introduction to chronic conditions month 2021 to be held throughout May. This will include a whole string of interactive and informative webcasts designed to address the primary care challenges of diagnosing and managing chronic conditions at a time when COVID-19 has thrown out the rulebook. Today in this podcast, we're going to be discussing palpitations, when to worry and the interplay with mental illness. So, Yasser, do you want to tell us a little bit about palpitations and give us an intro, an introduction?
2: Yes, of course, Peter. Well, firstly, thank you very much for that uh, introduction. It's a pleasure to be here. So, look, palpitations are for me uh, really bread and butter general practice. Uh, they're a very common presentation in primary care, one of the commonest reasons for referral to cardiology. And of course, they're associated with significant uh, distress and anxiety for some patients. The good news is, though, most are uh, thankfully benign. Uh, Significantly less than 50% uh, would be due to an arrhythmia, but many of which actually have no prognostic significance. But there is um, a high incidence of related anxiety disorders, which, of course, can be a cause and effect uh, of palpitations. So really the challenge for, from our perspective as frontline clinicians uh, in general practice is to try and identify those patients who do have a significant heart abnormality or are at risk of a potentially bad outcome, uh, but reassuring the others, which are going to be the uh, majority. Uh, and the other good bit of news is this can all be achieved uh, in primary care uh, through careful history taking and some simple investigations. We don't even have to be very fancy with the investigations uh, and I guess that's what we're going to hopefully try and uh, tease out and discuss uh, during this podcast.
1: Well that's that's really good to hear, yes, sir. I, I have to say it's a source of anxiety for me. People will often come in with a, a very indistinct story of palpitations. Often it only happens rarely and, and the question is who do I send for a to monitor? Who don't I? What tests do I do? So, yeah, perhaps you can sort of dive straight into giving me some tips and hints.
2: Well, absolutely. I think for um, it's really important, uh, actually, for most uh, assessments uh, in medicine. Try and in the back of your mind, as as we're taking the history, and, and the history is absolutely crucial. Just remember that differential potential differential diagnosis. You know, what are the main causes of palpitations? Yes, of course, arrhythmias are going to be one uh, potential cause. We've always got to be wary of patients with underlying structural heart disease. So arrhythmias, I would classify those as electrical issues. Structural heart disease, like heart failure or someone with a previous heart attack. Then there's this big uh, differential diagnosis of psychosomatic disorders. Um, And just to make sure we're not missing it in our history and initial workup, just remember some of the systemic causes and we must take a decent uh, drug history. So if I just go through those uh, very quickly uh, one by one, in terms of cardiac arrhythmias, the vast majority, if it is a cardiac arrhythmia that's causing the palpitation, are either going to be supraventricular or ventricular extrasystoles, in other words ectopics. Um, And that can be very easily teased out in the history, which we'll move on to maybe a bit later on. Uh, Obviously, there are gonna be some patients that have genuine uh, tachyarrhythmias, things like SVTs or atrial fibrillation, which is the most uh, common sustained cardiac arrhythmia. In terms of structural heart disease, precipitating palpitations, the main ones to worry about are patients with significant heart failure, a previous heart attack, any sort of congenital heart disease, or a history of cardiomyopathy. And then this is really your uh remit, isn't it, Peter? This is your uh you know expertise psychosomatic disorders, in particular patients with underlying anxiety, depression and other somatization disorders. Give us a flavor, Peter, for how these conditions could potentially precipitate uh, palpitations in terms of their their sort of impact on, on the on the physiology of the uh, cardiovascular system.
1: Absolutely, yes, and One of the the great things about these podcasts is that because we're coming to the subject from different areas, we're able to explore the interactions between these different things. And that's one of the great things about chronic conditions. So as you mentioned, psychosomatic, and in a way, I kind of almost throw it back and say it's not psychosomatic. It it is somatic. So people with anxiety have increased levels of adrenaline and noradrenaline, uh, which we've always been taught are hormones, but they've actually now been found in the brain and are also classed as neurotransmitters uh, as well as hormones. And then you've got uh, corticotrophin-releasing hormone, CRH. And and again, it's been shown that high levels of this are associated with anxiety and that that can turn on uh, the HPA axis, the hypothalamic-pituitary-adrenocortical axis. So you've got this complex interplay where something that's designed short-term as a fight-or-flight, turn on the cardiac system, make us able to run away or fight to maximum efficiency. If that goes on for long periods of time, it has all these unwanted effects. And in a way, the the feeling of anxiety is almost a side effect of having these hormones coursing through your system. Um, there's another uh, interesting couple of hormones that uh, might be worth, or neurotransmitters that might be worth mentioning. So serotonin, we often think of as being associated uh, with depression and happiness. But it, there's uh, an idea that low serotonin, level, serotonin levels uh, are also associated with anxiety, as are low GABA uh, levels. So both of these also play a part. So that that's a sort of a brief introduction, but um, I'll I'll throw it back to you. Well, that's really interesting,
2: uh, Peter, because uh, as I said earlier, it, I mean, a- anxiety and uh, and somatic uh, disorders, uh, you know, they can be cause and effect. So there could be actually an underlying um, arrhythmic cause for the palpitations, but if that fuels anxiety and you get increased catecholamine level, that's just going to potentially make the palpitations worse in terms of severity and frequency so there is a, a very interesting interplay there Absolutely. and I guess part of our job is to provide at appropriate times definitive and I think the key word is definitive sort of reassurance uh, if appropriate uh, to try and break that uh, sort of anxiety uh, drive uh, that that can that can be propagating the underlying issue uh, and I said also systemic causes always uh, have a in the back of your mind, could there be something systemic driving palpitations? And basically, anything that is uh, driving a faster and more vigorous heartbeat uh, can do this. So, you know, part of your workup should always be to rule out a high cardiac output state. So, full blood count and thyroid function to rule out hypothyroidism and uh, anemia. Uh, patients who are pregnant, female, female patients who are pregnant, obviously, the much higher. Uh, cardiac output, state, um, and also patients who have uh, an underlying sepsis or, or fever—that's um, going to, again, through uh, various hormonal mechanisms—are going to make the heart beat more vigorously. And anything that 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 provides stimulus to the heart to beat more vigorously and quicker can precipitate uh, abnormal uh, heart rhythms. And of course, don't forget to take a decent drug history—not uh, just uh, prescriptive drugs but also the uh, illicit uh, drug usage as well. Uh, But the common ones that we prescribe that you need to be aware of are salbutamol, uh, you know, uh, patients who uh, often uh, don't uh, or forget or ignore the advice to use their brown inhalers regularly and just think they can get away with just using lots of PRN usage of salbutamol. Eventually, you know, these are uh, drugs that will build up in the system. And that is a very powerful Uh, drive to uh, stimulate the heart. Uh, Recent withdrawal of beta blockers. Uh, Patients who've been on beta blockers for a while, they're not really widely used now in hypertension and and a lot of us are just stopping beta blocker use in patients. Uh, But that can have a rebound uh, effect uh, in terms of stimulating uh, the heart and it's not uncommon uh, to get palpitations. It's really important to tease out uh, that in the history. And then we've got a long list of drugs that can prolong the QT interval, uh, which of course, uh, many of these drugs are used in um, uh, mental health, in particular the psychotics, and in particular the atypical antipsychotics. And people, if you don't mind, uh, this is such an important issue, because it's uh, potentially a lethal issue if we don't uh, take this seriously. There are certain drugs that by delaying opening of potassium channels, actually delay the relaxation of the heart, the repolarization of the heart. That's everything after that QRS complex. You get this delay. Um, And if that delay is more than 500 milliseconds, the patient is in a danger zone because it could mean their next heartbeat, their next QRS complex could actually go straight on top of a T wave. And if that happens, these patients are at really high risk of a Almost lethal arrhythmia known as torsade de pointes. So I would always uh, take a good drug history and be very wary of drugs that can uh, significantly prolong the QT interval. Um, so haloperidol, chlorpromazine, quetiapine. These are the high-risk uh, drugs uh, that can do this. And I certainly, once I see QTC intervals approaching five hundred, um, I would I would like to think that I would uh, be have a low threshold for considering switching to drugs at lower risk like for instance olanzapine and risperidone much lower risk than quetiapine uh, in terms of the QTC similarly citalopram and escitalopram not very widely used quite high risk whereas fluoxetine and sertraline are low risk so just 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 be wary of that uh, drug history I'm not sure if you've got is it routine practice Peter from from your perspective, to keep an eye on that QTC in your patients on these drugs? Yes,
1: absolutely. I guess the problem is that almost all antipsychotics and antidepressants um, will flag up as a risk. And we have these oversensitive um, systems, don't we, that will will tell us to watch out. So it, it's something where you, always, you almost become a little bit blasé about it. Um, but you're right. And I think maybe worth mentioning the risk factors uh, for this. So underlying heart disease... Age over 65, being female, uh, more than one QT prolonging agent, uh, electrolyte abnormalities such as hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia, and bradycardia uh, are are all risk factors, aren't they? Um,
2: Yeah, no, uh, really good point. Uh, You've got to check the electrolytes. The electrolytes themselves, particularly hypokalemia and hypocalcemia, uh, can strongly uh, influence that, uh, that QT interval. Um, yeah, I just think, it, you know, this is a variable response uh, that patients have. Uh, you know, some patients, their QTC doesn't go up by very much. But we know drugs like quietapin quietapin for me, is is one that has caused an issue in this regard. On average, most patients' QTC might only go up by about 10, 12 milliseconds. But in about 15% of patients, it can go up by as much as 60 milliseconds. And if your baseline QTC is, say, 440, 450, 60 milliseconds is a, a tremendous amount for it to go up. So I think we're almost duty-bound for these psychotic uh, medications to to do a baseline ECG. I think we're we're taking too much of a gamble uh, if, we, if we don't do that. And of course, I guess it's the remit of the person who's sort of initiated uh, these drugs. But <laughs> in my experience, um, often psychiatrists... Uh, are a little bit loose on this. I don't know what your experience is on that.
1: So. Yes, I'm, I'm afraid I, I feel they often pass it to, to GPs, don't they? Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult holding in your mind the different drugs be, because they're, they're not ones we we use a huge amount of. But I, I think you're right. So the higher risk, quetiapine, definitely, of the atypical antipsychotics. Haloperidol, probably the only, uh, and chlorpromazine, that more old-fashioned ones we don't use very much so quetiapine remember big red flags and citalopram, and as you say Uh and also maybe worth mentioning amitriptyline because that's used a lot isn't it for chronic pain and things like that and and venlafaxine and mirtazapine other high risk yeah absolutely drugs.
2: venlafaxine and uh, mirtazapine so i would um, again you've got you've got alternatives that can be used in patients with a you know, with a high-ish baseline QTC. I mean, duloxetine, uh, not, you know, not licensed, got a similar license to venlafaxine in terms of its indication, but it pretty much blocks the same the same receptors, uh, much lower risk than venlafaxine. And same with, uh, I'm not a great fan of metazapine myself, but uh, some people are, but um, switching that to trazodone, for instance, uh, would offer uh, a lower risk. Um so I think that's important. Oh, by the way, you don't even have to be an expert at interpreting the ECG. The beauty of ECG in this regard is uh, the machine does it for you because if there's one very good thing about the ECG interpretation software. It's incredibly good at working out intervals. The subjective diagnosis is very variable. And I think I've sort of pointed this out in uh, numerous talks. But the numbers, what you want to look at is the QTC interval not the QT interval because the QT interval varies depending on your heart rate, but the QTC is referenced to the patient's heart rate at the time. Uh, And the ECG machine uh, actually works this out very, very accurately. So you could actually get away without even looking at the trace and just looking at the numbers. So I think we probably better move on now to how do we take that history. And I guess we've got to start start with the basics. Uh, palpitations can mean different things to different people, so it's always worth asking patients what do you mean by palpitation? And of course, for most patients it's going to be an abnormal uh perception, usually unpleasant perception uh, of the heartbeat. And remember it's a symptom and you know, the majority are not due to an arrhythmia. And most patients I think Peter would refer uh, a palpitation to, to when their heart seems to be beating quickly, but that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. It, theoretically, could, you could get slow palpitations, irregular palpitations. Some patients will describe a, a pounding sensation as a palpitation, missed beats or extra beats. So, really important to clarify what that means. And then, for me, I go straight on to the rate. I don't mess around anymore. I say, well, you've told me you're getting this awareness of your heartbeat, can you tap it out for me and it's pretty straightforward you'll be able to tell whether it's regular or irregular clearly if it's irregular especially irregularly irregular you're going to think more the atrial fibrillation route but the 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 rate is so important if they're tapping it out and it's clearly almost too fast for them to tap out you know going well above 150 uh, beats per minute that is almost always indicative of a tachyarrhythmia so something like an SVT for instance, or an atrial arrhythmia. If it's fast but they can tap it out reasonably comfortably, so maybe 120, 130 beats per minute, then that is far more likely to be reflective of uh, anxiety or a catecholamine-induced fast uh, heart rate. And then the next question that I find very helpful, and this can all be done very quickly, um, is ask how long it lasts. How long does each episode last? Because if someone tells you, I, I remember taking these really long histories of palpitations and I thought, God, this sounds really serious. And then the patient would say, oh, it only lasts a couple of seconds or one second. <laughs> you know, Anything that lasts less than a few seconds, it's highly unlikely to represent an underlying arrhythmia, okay, a tachyarrhythmia. You're really looking at ectopics. And ectopics, in my mind, uh, patients will either say, they're experiencing missed beats. So when a patient says they're experiencing a missed beat, it's probably because they're getting an ectopic. They don't actually feel the ectopic, but there's always a pause after an ectopic, and what they're experiencing is that pause. Some patients will describe it as a fluttering. Every two, for two or three seconds, I get this fluttering of my heart, and then other patients will actually feel the ectopic beat and say, I genuinely feel like I'm getting these extra thumps. So any history like that, yes, it might be very worrying for the patient, but for me, it's reasonably reassuring that we're probably dealing with ectopics. So how long each uh, episode of palpitation lasts can be extremely uh, uh, informative. Uh, And then the other, uh, it's always worth asking about the uh, frequency, because If you are going to end up referring this patient for uh, monitoring, ambulatory ECG monitoring, it's important for the cardiologist to know the frequency to work out what's the likely duration of monitoring that's going to pick this up. And our rule of thumb is whatever the frequency is, multiply it by two in terms of duration of monitoring. So if someone's getting palpitations every day, you would probably do a a 48-hour halter or every other day, you know, four-day uh, halter, obviously uh, factoring in uh, available uh, resources. Uh, I, I'm going to move on to alarm symptoms uh, a bit later on, uh, Peter, but um, I think, again, let's assess contributory contributing factors. So, Peter, I'm not sure if you can give some input here in terms of how do we explore, and I think it is well worth exploring sort of the psychological issues at that first Consultation because often patients aren't very forthcoming about this, but I think it's well worth sort of exploring that as 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 part of your initial, you know, any sort of recent life stresses or bereavements. Uh, Really, I don't know if you agree with me, but I I try and address them uh, right at the outset.
1: Absolutely, and I I think you've got to be really careful in the way you do that because uh, a, a lot of patients will feel gaslighted by suggestions that it's all in the mind, so you've got to be very sensitive. Uh, when you're taking this sort of history, but it's absolutely valid. And um, certainly I've seen people who have had palpitations because of anxiety. You're mentioning drugs earlier, by the way, another one I'd throw into the mix is caffeine. I don't know if you see this, but I see a lot of lorry drivers who have uh, Red Bull and similar high energy drinks to keep them them awake. And, And that can have huge issues.
2: Yeah no no i was definitely going to uh, move on to that so i mean in terms of lifestyle not just caffeine uh alcohol lowers the threshold for ectopy um and uh, don't forget about the illicit drugs like ecstasy and amphetamines and cocaine obviously commonly common cause of of palpitations we've talked about those prescription drugs the beta agonists the is not very widely used now uh, and of course uh, the QT prolonging uh, drugs. Um, so actually that it sounds like we've gone through a lot, but actually it doesn't take that long in most patients to tease out the important uh, aspects. Uh, but it, uh, what I move on to next uh, is a family history, because there are certain conditions in cardiology that are just simply designed to kill you. I'm talking about the, the channelopathies or uh, cardiomyopathies, Um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in particular Um, so uh, thankfully from a history perspective not for the patient uh, these conditions are autosomal dominant so you really don't have to delve very deep in the family history they're usually apparent in first degree relatives brothers sisters parents grandparents you know anyone particularly any unexplained death in someone under 40 so you know I must always remember this patient of mine who said my my brother was a fantastic swimmer, and he had an unexplained drowning in a sort of still lake. I mean, you've got to wonder what's going on there, um, and whether, and, and we know the dive reflex can, can can precipitate certain malignant arrhythmias, and also that patient who's had, you know, an epileptic seizure that uh, that you know caused a you know polished him off basically we know that about a third of epilepsy is often misdiagnosed and can be reflex seizures secondary to an arrhythmia um so just I think anyone who's had a family history first degree sudden death under the age of 40 take that seriously uh, and it just uh, just just makes you a little bit aware make sure you're not missing anything and then that really leads me on to the red flags. You know, you can have the most benign-sounding history of a palpitation, but there are certain red flags that should automatically uh, raise the uh, alarm bells and, and create an urgent need for investigation. Um, and that's anyone who's got who's describing palpitations on a background of significant heart failure with an ejection fraction of less than thirty-five percent, previous heart attack anyone with scarring of their heart, basically. By the way, these red flags are all there to pick up that patient who might be having a ventricular arrhythmia, ventricular tachycardia. And the reason we're so concerned about ventricular tachycardia, thankfully a very small minority of patients who get palpitations, is because VT is one step away from degenerating into VF. And then once you're in VF, without a... Uh, a defibrillator, it usually ends up being a uh, post mortem diagnosis. Okay, so these red flags are just there to identify that patient who's having palpitations that could be due to VT. So heart failure, previous heart attack, and I would also add in congenital heart disease or a significant valve problem, particular significant moderate to severe aortic stenosis. And then the next red flag symptom or sign, or or from the history, is anyone who gets palpitations with associated syncope or presyncope. You know, yes, palpitations can cause anxiety and they can feel, they might say, I'm feeling a little bit dizzy with these, but they shouldn't get significantly lightheaded to the point where they think they're going to pass out. So, anyone with presyncope or syncope, you've got to be thinking, could this be VT? Because VT Uh, will definitely cause a reduction in your cardiac output. And then we've talked about family history. Anyone with a family history of sudden cardiac death or sudden death below the age of 40. And then the big one is patients who reliably tell you their palpitations only occur during exertion. If someone's telling you, I only get them when I exert myself, again, that is a sign that this is potentially VT. Because VT usually is precipitated when the heart is under strain. And so uh, and so, be very wary of exertional palpitations uh, for that reason. So I would suggest anyone with any of those red flag features probably now needs to see a cardiologist. Um, uh, but there's a lot you can do prior to that. Uh, and most patients don't have those uh, red flag features. So it's well worth doing a, a basic examination. You don't actually have to be uh, very onerous uh, in this regard. To be honest, most patients with palpitations are going to have a normal uh, examination, but it is well worth feeling the pulse. I mean, you can diagnose atrial fibrillation, uh, sorry, not diagnose, but you can certainly screen for atrial fibrillation straight from a pulse check, irregularly irregular, and then you go straight onto the ECG. Obviously, look for signs of heart failure, look for uh, or listen for aortic stenosis, that systolic murmur in the Uh, right uh, sternal edge, upper sternal edge. Um, And then in terms of blood tests, it's very straightforward. Full blood count, thyroid function, and electrolytes. Rule out the high cardiac output state, rule out electrolyte uh, abnormalities. And then everyone needs a 12-lead ECG. Okay. Uh, That's a topic in itself. I'm not going to go through all the the things that you're going to identify. But there are certain things on the ECG, like the QTC interval, um, features of cardiomyopathy, ischemic features uh, that you need to look out for. And I think anyone with an abnormal ECG with palpitations, again, merits a uh, cardiology uh, referral. Uh, But if you've got a normal ECG, no alarm symptoms, a history that's very suggestive of ectopics, I, I think we can really draw a line under this uh, diagnostic workup. And then your job is to now reassure these patients. Absolutely. Be definitive. Don't sit on the fence. Just say, look, all the tests are pointing towards a very benign cause uh, for your palpitations. Uh, And I think if you're definitive about this, it's amazing how many patients' uh, palpitations then absolutely disappear. Because uh, assuming it's a lot of it, you've broken that vicious cycle of uh, of the anxiety propagating the the underlying issue.
1: That's a, a really helpful summary, Yesir. And very often, I'll uh, reassure patients, and actually, all I've done is transferred their their anxiety into my head. Um, but hopefully, with that uh, checklist, I'll be able to do it a bit more definitively. Um,
2: yeah, and well, I, I think that's that's a that's a really good point. But occasionally, you are going to get a patient who's just pushing you for a little bit more, obviously there's a danger. The more you investigate, you know, the more you're going to fuel the anxiety because the patient's probably thinking, oh, well, maybe there is some, uh, something that's worrying the doctor. But if there's one extra investigation that you're going to do in that scenario, uh, out of all the investigations, it's not actually a halter in that, in that low-risk scenario. In that scenario, it would be an echocardiogram. If you get an echocardiogram, get yourself a direct access echo, and it's completely structurally normal with a completely normal ECG, you are virtually home and dry in terms of excluding a sinister uh, etiology for those uh, palpitations. So, if you are being pushed, get that echocardiogram. But as I said, have a anyone with red flag features or or s- uh, symptoms that are suggestive of a uh, tachyarrhythmia, uh, refer to cardiology.
1: Uh, so, Peter, if you. As we're coming to, to sort of wrap up, Ed, we're hoping, I think, that these podcasts will give practical advice to busy GPs, i.e., all GPs. And, and what I've taken from what you've said is tap out the rhythm, which is something I've never thought of doing, um, but will now do that as part of my routine workout. In younger people, take a family history of sudden unexplained death or death through cardiac causes. And then the red flags, heart failure, previous heart attack, CHD, valve problems, associated syncope, exertion of palpitations or an abnormal ECG. Does that does that pretty much cover it, Yasir?
2: Yeah, it does cover it. Actually, if you don't mind, there's just a couple more tips, actually, on the history. Uh, always ask patients, if you can, what brings on the palpitation or how does it turn on and off? If it turns on and off like a light bulb, so one minute they're absolutely fine and then literally their heart's going like the clappers, that is very, very suggestive of a tachyarrhythmia. And if it stops suddenly, again, that's a tachyarrhythmia. If if they say it comes on reasonably quickly but over one or two or three minutes, then that's really a catecholamine-induced, probably anxiety that's driving that. So not a light bulb, but over two or three minutes, that's very suggestive of anxiety. And the other thing is, a lot of patients have worked out how to how to stop their palpitations. And if they're getting SVT, which is a very common arrhythmia in young patients, a lot of them have figured out, if I cough a lot or hold my breath and push, um, I can stop it. Because what they're doing, of course, is a Valsalva manoeuvre that's blocking their AV node and obliterating that re-entrant uh, circuit that's causing their their SVT. I mean, if you get a history like that, you know it's an SVT. And then another really clever one is uh, some patients get uh, palpitations every time they eat or drink something very cold. Because what happens is your esophagus is right next to your left atrium. And as the left atrium cools, it can trigger paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. This is quite a well-known phenomenon. So it's well worth asking any triggers and the pattern of onset and offset again honestly from a history i've usually got a very good idea as to what the underlying uh, etiology is is it an arrhythmia is it anxiety is it ectopics just by asking those those extra questions uh, and it's really well worth putting that down on the referral form as well to give to give the cardiologist an idea of what you're thinking
1: that's fascinating and <laughs> again i've i've certainly experienced what you've just described Uh, on a a hot summer's day uh, abroad when we're allowed to um, having an ice smoothie and thinking oh my god I'm having a heart attack Uh, and then repeating it five minutes later and getting the same thing just to see if it really was so now you've explained that thank you
2: and maybe Peter just before we end maybe we should give a bit of a nod to the uh, difficult situation we're all faced with at the moment Uh, you know the pandemic I think one of the great issues with the pandemic has been the uh, under-diagnosis of, of uh, all conditions, but in particular, you know, from my perspective, cardiovascular condi- conditions. I've seen atrial fibrillation diagnoses have plummeted in the last year because, of course, we're not doing as much opportunistic stuff. So one of the silver linings of the pandemic has been this hugely increased appetite for adoption of technology, not just in terms of uh, sorry not just technology but innovation in general different ways of working and I would strongly encourage uh, you know for patients who are complaining of palpitations to to see if we can utilize some of these wonderful kits you know these uh, portable ECG devices devices that pair with your smartphone so patients can actually you know as soon as they get their palpitation they can actually record it email it to uh, to the surgery and you can actually capture that very easily and document and record it in the notes. I mean I've certainly made a number of diagnoses now of ectopics, a couple of VTs um, and certainly a lot of atrial fibrillation without patients having to leave their living room. I mean it's, it's wonderful technology that, that I think we should be embracing now in this post Covid era.
1: Absolutely but it's good to hear that taking a history is still important and can still tell us the story most of the time. Crucially. Fantastic. Yes, yeah, so thank you very much. That's that's been an absolutely fascinating look through what I always find is is a difficult subject. Um, I think I feel confused at a higher level now, so uh, hopefully a little bit more confident when the wave of post COVID anxiety uh, present with with palpitations. And thank you to you all for listening. We we hope you found this podcast helpful. Please make sure to register both for the other podcasts in the series and for our interactive webcasts brought to you as part of Chronic Conditions Month. 2021. You can sign up if you're interested at chronicconditions.co.uk. Thank you again, Yasser.
2: Thank you very much.